Check it out. Welcome, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. My name is Reed. In this episode, we're going to be talking with Wayne Morgan about gender, diversity, and the law. Check it out. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle, and community news. Check it out. Is brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone. Wayne is not only a law professor, he's also an associate dean of the ANU College of Law. His research focuses on law, sexuality, and social justice. Hi, Wayne. How are you going? Uh, I'm well. Thank you, Reid, for inviting me here today. It's a pleasure having you. So why gender diversity in the law? Well, look, partly it does grow out of my own experience, of course, as a gay man. And with that experience, you know, it was obvious to me that so much of the way we talk about identity and think about identity has to do with gender, including aspects of sexuality. So, of course, that itself got me really interested in questions of gender. And my links with the gay community in my own experience also, of course, brought me into contact with a lot of gender diverse people, those who either identified as trans or intersex or indeed as neither binary gender. So, you know, I became extremely concerned when I started to learn more about my friends who identified this way. I thought it was bad enough being a gay man, but of course their experiences and the types of violence and discrimination they report are far, far worse. And even though I first started to come into contact with this stuff, you know, 20 years ago now, and I know a lot has changed since, we still know that that violence and discrimination is is quite extreme. So both um, for human rights values and my own sense of what's necessary, and because of those personal experiences in terms of my peer groups, I really wanted to get involved, both studying and working towards law reform in the area of gender identity. Can you describe a little bit about the kind of projects that you've worked on previously? Well, yes. Look, a number of those have been gay and lesbian related. You know, for example, way back in the 1990s, I helped the Tasmanian Gay and Lesbian Rights Group with their UN discrimination case, which finally led to the decriminalisation of gay sex in Tasmania. And of course, that was a very important and indeed global legal precedent setting case. So yeah, that was really important. But I've also done a lot of consulting work in terms of gender identity law reform as well. And so of course, here in the ACT, it's going back a few years now, but there was a law reform process leading up to the change in laws in 2014. And so I was uh, one of the consultants on that process. Again, just because of, you know, my knowledge of gender identity laws, not both just in Australia, but around the world, and also my knowledge of human rights. So this is an area where even though uh, reform has been achieved, we still have a lot more to do. Check it out. So delving into the experiences of trans and gender diverse people in the ACT, what are the kind of legal challenges that trans and gender diverse people are experiencing right here, right now. Yeah, well, look, luckily here in the ACT, it is a little bit easier 
with some of the legal issues than it is elsewhere in Australia. So one of the problems in Australia, as uh, everyone knows, is we live in what we call a federal system. So some things are handled by the federal government, other things are handled by state and territory governments. Generally speaking, law to do with birth certificates, things like that, are governed by states and territories. Other laws to do with things like passports are covered by the federal jurisdiction. So yeah, it can be quite hard sometimes to actually find out which laws do apply to you and what you can and can't do. But of course, there's been a number of areas that have been very important to transgender people or intersex people or the gender diverse community in terms of law reform. And one of those is this question of identity documents and making changes on identity documents. So from birth certificates through to passports and things like that. Another area, of course, is discrimination law. And there has been, over a period of years, a number of reforms in that area to try and prevent discrimination against people who identify as transgender or intersex or even gender diverse. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done there, in my opinion. Our anti-discrimination laws are not very strong. And the third area, of course, where we really need to think about both law reform but other government-funded community programs are violence the degree of violence that the gender diverse community experiences is incredibly problematic and we still aren't coming up with very many good ways to deal with that in my opinion. So where there's been most reform, especially here in the ACT, has been on that issue of identity documents and that's really important and I can run through some of those if you'd like. Yeah, so if you can tell me for for a minute, um, why is it so important for trans and gender diverse people to have a change of identity document. Okay, well for a start, we all know how important identity documents are and how they're needed for a whole range of not just legal purposes, but even you know to open a bank account, to do a whole range of day-to-day things. In fact, these days, identity documents are even more important than they used to be because they are demanded so often. Now, of course, if a person, uh, say an adult, transgender person, has uh, transitioned in some way, their identity documents may actually, in a sense, force them to reveal their personal history. That can lead to a whole range of discriminatory outcomes and, again, violence, etc. Apart from the fact it's a breach of their rights to privacy. There is no reason why anyone needs to know that history. So for the very important reason that their identity documents conform with who they actually are as a person, it is important that there is that ability to change those documents. And the problem has been that historically that's been a very difficult process and in fact has required gender reassignment surgery before a change could be made on identity documents. Also historically it has meant that you only have two choices. It has to be male and female and there is no other alternative. Luckily, uh, and the ACT led the way with this, but now there have been some other states and territories in Australia who have followed suit. What the ACT did back in 2014 was remove that requirement for surgery to change your official identity on these documents. So there are still some things that are necessary. It is still necessary to prove your identity and that usually requires medical personnel, doctors, psychiatrists to attest to the fact that you have received treatment 
with respect to your gender identity, but then changes can take place. The other reform that happened was uh, in the ACT was that an allowance was made so that people no longer have to designate themselves as male or female. There is a third category, X, which translates into, well, a couple of different choices that people can specify, uh, including unspecified uh, with respect to sex or gender. So that's a really positive thing as well. Unfortunately, back in 2014, there were far less reforms with respect to intersex. There were some, but they were mainly directed at the parents of intersex children to give them a little bit of thinking time because previously, really, you have to list a child's sex on a birth certificate almost immediately. So this reform was aimed at giving them a period of time so that they could decide what to do. What has not been changed, though, and what desperately needs reform when it comes to intersex issues is the law should forbid Uh, surgical intervention on intersex minors. So before they are old enough to decide for themselves whether they want that surgical intervention. And that's a reform that, you know, still hasn't been achieved. But it is good that we have seen some of those reforms with respect to the identity documents. Do you think that in regards to intersex surgery, do you think that needs to be a legal change or can that be a change coming from the medical community from a best practice scenario. Yes, absolutely. And I really wish that it could be something that was purely done as a matter of medical ethics. The problem with that, of course, and one of the beauty sometimes in using law, if it can be achieved, is that immediately you will have a change that people must comply with instead of a more cultural change that might take longer. So yeah, when it comes to this issue, I think the consequences of surgery on intersex children can be so incredibly harmful in terms of their future identity and their future mental health. It should simply be banned. And that would, of course, immediately prevent any medical practitioner from performing that sort of surgery. The problem we have if we wait for a more culturally based change, which perhaps is more effective in one way, of course, we will always have the situation where we might have a relatively uninformed medical practitioner. We might have parents who are desperately seeking some sort of alignment or some sort of traditional gender that they can designate their child into. And so there's a lot of pressure. And I would be worried that if we leave it to a cultural thing, it would be difficult for some medical practitioners to resist that pressure. So yeah, on that issue, I do think a legal ban is necessary. So the second thing that you mentioned was um, about anti-discrimination protections. And I just wanted Mm. to follow up on that. Um, What are the current anti-discrimination protections in place for trans people in the ACT? Because I don't think many people are necessarily thinking about until it happens to them. Yeah, exactly. And this is one of the problems. I think we need a lot more education as well, um, both for members of the trans community, but also for the general public so that they know what their obligations are as well. Look, it is certainly illegal in the ACT, both under ACT law and under federal law, to discriminate against people on the basis of their gender identity status or their gender presentation. Luckily, these reforms were only put into federal law not that long ago. It was one of the last areas that federal law included 
in terms of federal discrimination law. So it's good that at least now it's covered. <laughs> but the problem is more to do with the nature of anti-discrimination law generally, which really desperately needs reform. So for a start, anti-discrimination law only protects you in certain areas of life, not across the whole gamut. So we're talking about schools, employment. Exactly. Public transportation, is that? Yes, yes. So the public areas of life, you know, but it doesn't stop someone discriminating against you in sort of their own private life, so to speak. But yeah, it does mean your employer can't discriminate against you, your school or university can't discriminate against you, etc, etc. One of the big problems, though, with the nature of anti-discrimination law is the fact that the complainant, and of course we're usually talking about someone who, you know, bears the brunt of human rights abuses all the time. They may not be very well resourced. We know that lots of people in the gender diverse community, because of the discrimination and violence they suffer, also have economic difficulties as well. So they may not have the resources to prosecute um, a good legal case. And all of the power really is often on the other side. So the respondent side, because they might be a big corporation who's an employer or a big university like the ANU or you know what I mean. So they have a lot more resources than the poor complainant. And yet what we call legally the onus of proof is on the complainant. So in other words, the transgender person has to prove that, you know, the discrimination took place and all the rest of it. So one thing that human rights lawyers have been calling for for a long time and I think we desperately need is to reverse that. So in other words, when a person alleges that their human rights have been, or that they've been discriminated against on the basis of being a transgender person. It should be up to the employer or the education provider or whatever to prove that that did not happen. And if we did that, I think it would be easier in terms of establishing some good cases. The other problem with anti-discrimination law is that often the outcomes are private and confidential. So nobody ever gets to hear about them. And so it's not a very good way to educate the public generally about the rights of transgender people, the problems with discrimination and the sort of hurt, well, huge impacts on life that discrimination can cause. So I think we need to do a number of things. We need far more education in the area. We need the ability for, say, transgender NGO groups to bring cases on behalf of people without individual complainants having to do it themselves. And we need reversal of the onus of proof to a certain extent at least. And so that transgender people aren't always behind the eight ball in trying to prove that yes, they were actually discriminated against. And now I think if we had all of those things, yeah, we might actually start to see some improvement. Of course, at the same time, what is really desperately necessary is education. Even though things have changed a lot and people are far better educated these days and far more aware of the gender diverse communities issues than they have been in the past, there is still nowhere near enough sensitivity and enough understanding. And so that really has to continue. Check it out. Um, it's a pretty significant claim to suggest that we should be changing the 
the onus or the yes, burden of proof. I know. What is, what's the legal kind of context for for that? Are there examples of that in the past Look, there and are, that sort of thing? Um, there are. There are a number of areas of law where that takes place, particularly when it's difficult, when there's a power imbalance, um, the sort of situation that we're talking about. So that's about exactly here. what we're talking about. Exactly. Exactly what we're talking about here. There are certainly models in other countries and other jurisdictions that have done it. And, you know, the sky has not fallen in. The world has not come to an end. Business has not ground to a halt. Uh, yeah, there are certainly good models that we can draw on. Look, it was actually partially attempted in Australia at the federal level under the previous Rudd-Gillard government. Unfortunately, there was such a scare campaign in the media. So in other words, law reform bodies have recommended this and they have recommended it in Australia, including the Australian Human Rights Commission. Okay. But the problem is that there was such a scare campaign in the media, often brought about by big business, etc., because they never like a reversal of the onus of proof, that it wasn't possible to get that reform through Parliament. So that was a real shame. But yeah, as I said, the models are there. It sounds like a strange legal thing to do, but as I said, it's not actually that uncommon. And surely the human rights values that we should all hold dear outweigh some sort of legal notion that a complainant must always prove their case. And we're not talking about presuming that a defendant is always guilty. We're not talking about that either. As I said, all we're talking about is taking some of the pressure off the complainant and making the respondent justify their actions more so than they often have to do at the moment. Right. That, that's incredibly, incredibly fascinating. What were you saying about transgender teenagers earlier? Well, yeah, and this, of course, we've only had to look at Australian TV in the last few years to see, you know, a real focus on this issue. And again, I think this is part of, uh, you know, in, in one way, it's a sign of a positive thing, the growing education and awareness of the general population around the gender diverse community and the issues. I think it also points out how young people can be when they first start to identify that they don't quite fit with the way that everybody expects them to be and perceives them to be. And I think that's a positive thing as well. I think the more that we encourage notions that identity is a matter of self-determination rather than biology, it can only help. But the problem again is the legal framework. And yes, there have been some reforms, but there still need to be a lot more. So the problem, of course, is that transgender teenagers are minors. And strictly speaking, they cannot make decisions for themselves about such permanent, well, for for example, if they did want permanent medical intervention. And so parental approval is necessary. And in some circumstances and for some types of treatment, certainly for surgery, uh, court approval is necessary. Yeah, so let's just take a step back for our listeners who don't necessarily know the ins and outs for transgender teenagers. Mm -hmm. What might happen is a person who might be 10, 11, or 12 realizes that they're transgender or, you know, comes to that conclusion, and then they they're going to start puberty. Exactly, and that's what makes it such an issue at that time. You see, some of these people will have an idea of their transgender status. It it could be as early as five or six. But why it becomes so crucial is, yeah, Reid, for exactly the reason that you've given, it's that onset of puberty and the fact that the onset of puberty affects the body so much. It then becomes more difficult, perhaps, 
to make some of the changes that people want to make. And it also, of course, is just complete anathema to mental health and well-being. If uh, a person identifies as, say, a man but they or a male, but they are starting to develop breasts, they are starting to menstruate, I mean, this is incredibly traumatic. Same if we are talking about male to female and, say, the voice breaking, you know, Adam's apple, the growth of facial hair, all of those sorts of things. So, yeah, that's why teenage years become such a crucial time, particularly in terms of hormone treatment, to stop some of those um, secondary sex characteristic changes. So the opportunities for transgender young people to access medical interventions, they include puberty blockers, which prevent the onset of puberty, and then at a later stage, cross-gender hormones. So um, taking hormones, either testosterone or estrogen, of the gender that they identify with. Yes. So in the ACT, do you have to go through the family court system for both puberty blockers and cross-gender hormones, or uh, is it just the cross-gender hormones and surgery? Do you know what the difference is? Look, yeah, there, the there, have been, there have been some reforms. So for a start, yeah, the fact that we're in uh, the ACT actually makes no difference on this issue because it does come under the federal family court. Uh, okay. Yeah, so it's the decisions of the Federal Family Court. And they have been, over a period of years, relaxing. And so, yes, it does appear now that puberty blockers will be okay and that parents can decide on that on their child's behalf or the child themselves. But, yes, if we're going further than that, there might be issues. And certainly surgery is a step too far at present for if you are under 18 years of age without the court approving that. And so, yeah, now there, there is uh, lots of calls for law reform in this area, and I know that the Chief Justice of the Family Court has made comments on the issue. But really, yeah, we've got to wait until the judges make those reforms through a series of cases, and that takes time, or we have to wait till legislation. And yes, certainly at the federal level, I think as we're all aware, and with the current government, there's not a lot of impetus, shall we say, for reform in areas of gender and sexuality, or at least not the sorts of reforms that we might like to see. Do you think that's inherently from the discrimination and marginalisation that this community faces as a whole? That there's not that appetite for reform? Absolutely. Yes, I think that that is partly it. You know, one thing that's very disturbing, and this goes for both sexuality and gender identity, unfortunately, I often feel that these groups are used as scapegoats. So they are used as political footballs to score points. And so the political parties use them to separate themselves from each other so to speak. And so it becomes more about the politics of the two major parties than it does actually about human rights. Now that's just absolutely appalling that you know politics wins. Um, and I think there's a fair bit of that going on. Although I don't think we should simply make the assumption that conservative governments are less likely to make these changes. We need to remember that in a number of jurisdictions it has actually been conservative governments that have made some important changes, both in terms of criminal law and anti-discrimination law, and that goes for the gender diverse community as well as gay men, lesbians, etc. Do you have an example of that off the top of your head? Well, certainly I can give you examples when it comes to the gay and lesbian law reform yeah, go side for of things. It. Yeah. So, yeah, well, for example, both decriminalisation and the first anti-discrimination law protections, yeah, for both sexuality and gender identity actually act happened under conservative governments in Victoria. Wow. 
and yeah, of course, this isn't necessarily uh, you know the way that politics works. This may be you know a conservative government may be able to get something through that a Labor government cannot, because often, of course, when we have a Labor government in the lower house, which controls government, we will have a conservative force in the upper house or the Senate, and so it's often that that prevents it from going through. So yeah, the, the politics of it is all very very complicated. The politics of law reform can be very very complicated, but as I said, in my opinion, that should never outweigh the human rights. Unfortunately, it does. So we're going to have to wait for more cases decided by the Family Court or actual uh, federal legislation before we'll see further reform on that side for transgender young people. Check it out. So as as activists, as people interested and engaged with politics and, and wanting to make changes for gender diverse and transgender Australians, where should we be spending our time? Good question. Well, I'm a great believer in trying to do everything at once. (laughs) There is still so much to do. Um, And I'm also a great believer that, you know, different people have different sorts of skills. And, you know, this is a continual ongoing project of both cultural and legal change. And so I don't think it's a matter of people just saying, look, I'm not legally trained, I don't have legal skills, you know, I can't really help very much. And also I don't think it's just the responsibility of the gender diverse community. So it's the responsibility of all of us and we can use our skills whether we have legal skills or not. So, you know, starting at the very basics, talking about these issues, all of us with friends and family, making sure that we're well informed And making sure also that we intervene when we hear the transphobic jokes or whatever. So, you know, I think that those cultural aspects are still really, really important. I also think, although I recognise that this can be dangerous and is very much a matter of context, I also think that coming out, you know, can be very valuable in certain circumstances. So, you know, that sort of cultural engagement needs to really continue. In terms of the legal side of things, yeah, I think there's, again, a whole range of things that people can do. And part of it, of course, is constantly keeping these issues in the public eye. And, yeah, even though people might feel a bit intimidated sometimes, anyone can write to a politician. And particularly these days with the electronic means that we have in terms of lobbying, etc., There are so many now NGO-type groups that we can work through in terms of these sorts of things. And there are far more lawyers who are ready to take test cases. And I think that that's a really valuable thing as well. But people have to have the courage to stand up. You know, for example, there's just been a really important case decided by the United Nations with respect to transgender people in Australia. It's received very little publicity at the moment. And this took a very determined transgender person to litigate this, first of all, to try and litigate in Australia, to lobby law reform, and finally go through a six-year process in the UN to try and get some sort of result. Can you explain what the the case was? I will. Sorry, I haven't done that yet. Yeah, so um, another aspect of the legal discrimination in Australia, which is appalling, again, it's been reformed in some jurisdictions, is the requirements about marriage. In Traditionally, in all states and territories in Australia, if you wanted to change your sex or gender on a birth certificate, you had to be unmarried. 
And if you were married, you had to get divorced before you were allowed to make that change. So this was a very odd law, and probably it was to prevent the appearance of same-sex marriages. Anyway, the point was that there was a woman in New South Wales who had been born biologically male, married, and went through gender reassignment surgery, wanted to have birth certificates changed, but did not want to get divorced. And her partner did not want to get divorced. But under New South Wales law, she cannot have her birth certificate changed until she divorces. So it's a real type of blackmail with respect to your intimate relationships, which is completely unacceptable. So this case was taken to the UN. And the what, UN... What year was it taken to the UN? Oh, well, look, originally, oh gosh, you're testing my memory now. Um, back in about 2012, it may have even been earlier. So quite recently. Well, five years, as I said. Yeah. It has actually taken five to six years to get the decision. The decision was just literally handed down last month. And the UN Human Rights Committee said that those laws were unacceptable and that people should not be forced to divorce before they can change their identity documents. Now, of course, we don't know whether New South Wales will comply with that decision. We don't know if other states and territories in Australia will. Some states and territories have already reformed. South Australia, um, ACT. Uh, Victoria tried to do it last year, although it was defeated in the upper house by the Conservative Coalition. So, uh, yeah, there's still a lot of work to do in that area as well. But the fact that we had this UN case, it took a very determined transgender person to fight that for 10 years or more. We need more heroes like that. Is there anything coming up on the horizon that you can see in terms of law reform? We've obviously got a very controversial postal vote that'll impact um, many LGBTIQ Australians yes. as well as trans and intersex Australians. Mm. Um, is there anything that people should be looking out for? Anything? Are you optimistic about any legal reforms coming up at the moment? Um, oh, look, Reid, in some ways you're asking the wrong person. Um, no, I'm not particularly optimistic for the near future, I must admit. You know, the turmoil that the federal government is in, in terms of its own continued existence, the fact that the Labor Party, in my opinion, tends to use sexuality and gender identity issues a bit as a political wedge. Let's not forget that the Labor Party itself did not support a free vote on same-sex marriage until the last couple of years, and certainly not when they were in government. They could have bought it about then. I am worried that we will continue to fall behind with respect to issues of trans and gender diverse community issues as well. So yeah, that pressure and that constant reminding people of the breaches of human rights and the violence and discrimination that that causes. I think, as I said before, it's the responsibility of all of us to keep on talking about those things so that perhaps I can get a bit more optimistic in the future. <laughs> That's about all we have time for. So thank you for your time, Wayne. It was really lovely having you in here to have um, conversations about um, reform and gender diversity. I think um, we've touched on some really key issues. Never think it's too hard, people. And as I said, there will always be lawyers who are happy to help you for free. You just got to find them. So, you know, keep looking. And thank you, Reid. I think it's really important that these issues get aired. And yeah, I'm more than happy, you know, to chat in the future. For more information, visit our website at aidsaction.org.au. Follow us on Facebook or become an AIDS Action Council member. 
you know you want to. LGBTIQ health, lifestyle, and community news. Check it out. It's brought to you by the AIDS Action Council. From Canberra. For everyone.